All right, well, we are... I've done so many family camps in my life, I know some sessions are harder to keep the attention of people than others. First one's usually fine. Second one, after a full day of activity, you are begging for mercy from the speaker, and the speaker's begging for mercy from the hearer, so if we can be merciful to each other, that'll be great. And uh, I think by tomorrow morning, we should be thoroughly exhausted and... uh, We'll just have to really beg for mercy from God then. <laughs> so, mercy from each other today, mercy from God tomorrow. That's the plan. Um, I'm going to be talking today about a topic. I don't know how familiar you are with this in your own um, reading and teaching and all of those things, but it's on thoughts and temptations. And uh, the, the Puritans, they had a great deal to say about Uh, The Vanity of Thoughts. In fact, Thomas Goodwin wrote a book called The Vanity of Thoughts. And in that book, he speaks about thoughts being those reasonings or consultations or purposes, resolutions or intents, ends, desires, or cares of the mind as as, uh, opposed to external words and actions. So whatever goes on in the mind, uh, the soul, the inward man, Uh, Those are thoughts, and he speaks of the vanity of thoughts, so he looks at the sinfulness of thoughts. And remember earlier we looked at Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 where God judges the wickedness of man in Noah's time, and the reason he judges uh, in such a severe way by way of a worldwide flood is because the thoughts of man are only evil continually. So it was their thoughts that actually really provoked God. Did their thoughts lead to actions? Absolutely. But he actually zeroes in on the thoughts. And in Goodwin's book on the vanity of thoughts, he says that uh, we as humans usually think that our thoughts are free. What does he mean by that? Uh, He means that we sometimes get to live and, and act as though we can think whatever we want as long as we don't say it, as long as we we don't uh, commit any actions. And so you, you know those types of people, they sort of glory in the fact that they say what's on their mind, uh, and somehow they're proud about it as they offend you, and they say, well, I just speak my mind. And uh, that's all well and good uh, until they say something to you. But the point is, um, thoughts are... <laughs> this is... <laughs> yeah, yeah. They don't like this topic. That's okay. I'm a Presbyterian. We love babies. <laughs> I think Baptists do too, but... Um... <laughs> oh, good. You're awake. <laughs> but I'm just going to point out about thoughts, about how the Scriptures speak about thoughts quite often in different ways. So, uh, the law judges our thoughts. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12... We read, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Word of God, God's Word, goes right to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are told that thoughts can actually receive forgiveness. So not just actions, but thoughts. In Acts 8, verse 22, Peter says, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. He's speaking to Simon Magus. 
and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Whatever was going on in Simon Magus's heart, Peter understood it was evil, and he exhorts Simon to actually pray that he would receive forgiveness for merely what was on his heart, not even things that he had done. We're also told that thoughts can be repented of. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So, People can repent of their thoughts. The wicked can repent of the things that they have thought about. They can also defile a person in Matthew 15, verses 18 to 19, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come, and then the first word is evil thoughts. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and then he lists murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. But interestingly, evil thoughts was the first thing listed there. And so, whether you're in the Old Testament in Isaiah's time, whether in the New Testament, what you find is there is a frequent focus upon the role of thoughts in the lives of the wicked and also the godly. They can also reveal hypocrisy. In Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts, that would be their thoughts, are far from me, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And so people can worship and they can speak audibly and yet have their hearts and their thoughts far away from God. So Thomas Goodwin, in this book, The Vanity of Thoughts, it's a really good book. I would highly recommend it. He says, our thoughts are the first motions of all the evil in us. So we have indwelling sin, but it's our thoughts where it's the first motion of sin. For they make the motion and also bring the heart and the object together. And this is like classic Puritan way of uh, <clears throat> writing, pardon me. So just bear with me. He says, they bring the heart and the object together, whatever that object may be. They are panders to our lusts, and they hold the object till the heart has played the adulterer with it and committed folly. So in speculative uncleanness, that is what goes on in our mind that's unclean, whatever it may be, and in other lusts, they hold up the images of those gods they create which the heart falls down and worships. They present credit, riches, beauty, till the heart has worshipped them. And so people in their thoughts, they hold up idols, and they fall down before those idols, whatever those thoughts may be, and they are worshipping those idols every time they consent to these thoughts and allow the thought to manifest, and they play the adulterer with the thoughts. Now, this brings up a very important topic concerning the will, because anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time will know that there's different ways in which we can even perceive our will to work. And without getting too scholastic on you, I'm going to give you the two basic ways in which the will is said to work. There is what we call voluntary uh, acts of the will and involuntary acts of the will. Now, strictly speaking, everything that we do is voluntary because everything that we do is we're responsible for. We, we don't have a little person jump in 
And you know, the problem with watching uh, television shows when you're younger is there's the devil and the angel, and they come in and they have this debate, right? Um, and it's not really part of you. Well, we don't have a little devil and angel on our shoulders. We have a devil and an angel, so to speak, in terms of the sinful nature and the new man. And in that, we believe that there are thoughts that can be called involuntary. And we call them involuntary, not that we are not responsible for them, but they are like, Goodwin says, knockings and interruptions. They just come out of nowhere. And we all know what this can be like, you can even be praying, and you're praying, and, and it doesn't even have to be a crazy bad thought, but you have a, a prayer going on, and you're like praying for people, and then you're thinking, and I really hope that uh, Liverpool signed this player in the summer who's really good, and you're like, whoa, stop, Mark. Uh, and whatever we have, like, we can just quickly branch off into a, and it's just, where did that come from? This involuntary thought. I didn't, you know, dial up and say, hey, I'd like a few of these thoughts to come into mind. Our mind has a massive all sorts of things going on, and we can be praying, and something involuntary can just arise. Now, was that voluntary in a certain sense? Yes, because I'm still responsible for everything that I do. It's involuntary in the sense that we didn't go looking for it. It just seems to pop up like an eruption. And so, these knockings and interruptions break in upon the heart of a believer. Stephen Charnock, he talks, the, talks about these first motions such as skip up from our natural corruption. So, you know, you have indwelling sin, and it's just like, uh, you know, when you have something boiling, and all of a sudden it just starts spurting up. Well, that's kind of like what happens with sin. The indwelling sin starts to boil, and the water starts spraying, and you've been hit in the face ever when you're cooking pasta or something from boiling water. Well, that's what an involuntary sinful thought is like. And he says, these are sins. Though we don't consent to them, and though they are without our will, that we haven't gone looking for them, they are not against our nature. So we can't say they don't count, because they are not against our nature. Not only the thought formed, but the very formation or the first imagination is evil and therefore sinful. Now, some in the Roman Catholic tradition actually tried to argue that involuntary thoughts are not sinful. And so when it comes to things like lust... Um, you have a lustful thought and it just arises and you're like, well, I didn't act on that. And so the Roman Catholics typically argued that that wasn't ever a sin. So you could play the adulterer in a sense in the heart as long as you don't act upon it. Uh, the word concupiscence, uh, that was the word that was used by the, his the historical theologians of our past age. We don't use it much anymore. But the basic idea is that as long as it stays hidden away, tucked in your heart, it wasn't a sin, whereas typically the Protestant Reformed um, tradition has said, no, they are sins because they still spring from our nature, and we are responsible for our nature. And so Charnock says, voluntariness is not necessary to the essence of sin. But when we voluntarily do think of a thought, and we do go looking for thoughts that are evil, it aggravates the sin. So I'm going to kind of give you a rundown of the stages of sin, and this has been helpful to me at least in trying to help people understand the aggravation of sins. So uh, when you think about the stages of sin, I don't know how you typically think about the stages of sin, but um, it usually begins with the fact that we have to first understand that even as redeemed Christians, we have indwelling sin. 
And so in that sense, we are still going to sin. Now, what does that look like? Well, we still have an inclination and propensity because of the act of the will to sin, to think certain things that we would never want others to know, and we certainly uh, would not wish for God to know. They are right in the bosom of our heart, and they are the first inclinations, the first thoughts. That is where sin begins. It is an inclination. We should strike right away at any inclination towards a sinful thought. We should mortify it by the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8, 13, and put it to death and think about something else, something that is righteous, that is pure, um, and so on and so forth. But then we can actually go another step, and we can start to deliberate on that inclination that was sinful, and this is called deliberation. And that can come via an inward temptation or an outward temptation. You can have an inward temptation because of your heart, or there can be an outward temptation, and you see something outward, and your heart yearns after it. What should you do? Well, you should strike it down right away, but sometimes we start to deliberate on that sinful proposal, and it's like we start to cook a stew, and it starts to simmer, and we allow it to develop, and you, it's almost as though we add a few more ingredients to spice it up, so to speak, because we are playing the adulterer and falling down before this idol and thinking about it. We're deliberating. The next stage is when we resolve to actively sin, to commit the sin. So you may have this with regards to overspending. It may be food. It may be uh, sexual lust. Whatever the case may be, there's a resolution to sin, to act upon that. And that's always voluntary. That is always where we are responsible. Even though we're responsible for everything, we resolve to sin. Now, sometimes you can resolve to sin. You're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead with this. But then you get uh, held up because something providential happens and it keeps you from sinning. Uh, you know, like a young man goes, I'm going to look at something on the internet I shouldn't. And he's going to click on this link. He's deliberated in his heart. He's going to click on this link. He's about to click on the link. And then mom comes tearing into the room. Hey, have you started cleaning up your room? And he doesn't actually click on the link because mom came into the room and there's no way he's going to follow through with the act. So he had the resolution to do it, but he didn't follow through with the act. Following through with the act is always obviously more serious than just the resolution. Is the resolution to sin a sin? Yes. But the act itself aggravates the resolution. Now, what comes after that? A certain pleasure in performing the act. So after you perform the act, what should a Christian do? Immediately repent. You should repent at every stage, but you should repent then. Sin is aggravated, exacerbated when you perform the act, but then instead of feeling sorrow, you feel the pleasure from the sin. You're making the sin worse. So anytime you enjoy sin, you are making the sin that you have deliberated to do and fulfilled in doing, you're making it worse. Are there other stages? Yes, in fact, there's another stage, and it doesn't always need to happen. Sin can take place at any of these stages. But sometimes people actually boast. So they commit the sin, they enjoy the sin, and then they boast about what they've done. 
And that is where things are becoming very serious. This is the sign of an extremely hardened heart if it is a professing Christian. We know non-Christians do this often. They, they commit a sin and they're, they're proud about it. They call good evil and evil good. But when Christians start to delight in a sin and then boast about it, they are on a very bad path. The last stage that I've been able to sort of come up with in, in my thinking, and I may have not got this entirely correct, but I think it's right, is the deliberate repetition of those stages and acts. So you do something, you boast about it, and that's bad, but when you go back and do it again and again and again, you are making the sin worse. So those are the stages of sin. People need to understand there are stages. When you start to think about sin, you've sinned, and you need to deal with it. And when it comes to sin, it's easier to deal with the sin the earlier in the stages. So when you get to the point of deliberate repetition of the act, don't think that you can just stop sinning. It's harder once you get to the deliberate repetition of an act that you have enjoyed and boasted about. You can have a lot more success in your defeat of sin when you deal with the inclination and propensity and you turn your thought away from an evil thought and you change it by God's grace to a good thought. And a lot of people lament how they do this and they do that. And one of the problems, I think, is they haven't fully understood that they need to start going to the root of their problem and not saying, how do I stop doing these acts? To how do I stop thinking the way I think? And when it comes to the sinfulness of thoughts, it's amazing that you know, we have such a mental health epidemic on our hands in North America especially. We have so many issues with young people, with elderly people. It's, it's everywhere. Um, you see it in schools. And one of the things that strikes me is that we don't want to deal with what goes on in the mind and the sinfulness of thoughts and how that is crippling so many people because they're allowing their thoughts to run riot in their lives. And people want to deal with the sort of outward manifestations of the problem, the act of sin and, and all of these things, but they don't want to deal with the fact that our thoughts are what can actually cripple us in our mental health. It's a complex subject. I'm not trying to say that's the only issue, but I do think it's a big issue with mental health is the inclination and propensity towards evil that we don't deal with as Christians. So when we have this desire, it's called an enticing desire in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Epithymia is a, is a Greek word, and it usually has to do with sinful desire. This sinful desire is basically the tenth commandment. You shall not covet. And that is what we are dealing with. Remember, when it comes to the apostle Paul, outwardly righteous, blameless, but when it came to Romans 7, and what was it that got him to see that he was a sinner? It was sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me all forms of covetousness. Paul couldn't deal with a wicked heart. He could have his actions be blameless in a certain sense, but he couldn't deal with his heart apart from Christ. So we have these temptations, and what are temptations. Well, there are two types of temptations. There's internal temptations and external temptations. And John Owen discusses this. He says, temptation is a raising up in the heart. 
and proposing to our mind and affections that which is evil. So we're not talking about temptations that are neutral or sometimes you can be tempted to even righteousness. I'm talking about sinful temptations. And the temptation that might not be evil is, um, you know, you, you, you feel like uh, you see something really beautiful and you say, oh, I'm really tempted to go on a hike today. It's a beautiful day. We use that language. There's nothing sinful in that. I'm using it in the sinful sense. So a sinful temptation is a proposal to our mind and affections, which is evil. Trying, as it were, whether the soul is going to close with its suggestions, that is, deliberate upon its suggestions and then act upon it. How far it will carry them on. And that's the stages of sin. Even though the temptation will not completely prevail. So some people allow the temptation to, to kind of go and go and go and then they finally cut themselves short. And the reason they cut themselves short is, is can be sometimes not even for righteous reasons. So a, a young man sees a beautiful young lady and he has lustful thoughts towards her and he, he just allows his mind to continue in this trajectory towards the young lady. But he doesn't go up to her and say, you know, I've been thinking all sorts of things about you right now and I'd just like to, uh, you know, have you for my girlfriend um, because he knows that maybe she is just going to either call the police, punch him, or just ignore him altogether. He doesn't stop for a righteous reason. He stops for fear of shame or embarrassment or whatever. So sometimes even in our temptations, we don't follow them through because actually there's another sinful impulse that's keeping us from following through with them, which may be shame. That's not a good reason, of course, to give up a temptation. A good reason to give up a temptation is in honor of God and so on. So there is this fact where a temptation may not completely prevail. And John Owen actually makes this point, and it's quite striking because I think it goes against a lot of evangelical thought prevalent today, especially when it comes to same-sex attraction and things like that. He says, now when such a temptation comes from without, when somebody solicits you from without, you're not necessarily sinning because you shouldn't be responsible for something that somebody is trying to do towards you. Your heart may say no and reject it right away, like Joseph when he ran away. That was an outward temptation. Christ, an outward temptation, he withstood it. He says, when such a temptation comes from without, it is to our soul an indifferent thing. It's neither good nor evil. How we respond will make all the difference unless it be consented to. So if we consent to an outward temptation, then we've committed sin. But then he says something really important. He says, but the very proposal of a sinful desire from within being the soul's own act, that is a sin. And I think a lot of people would like to believe that sinful impulses and desires from within, where we meditate upon them, but then don't ultimately carry through with the sin, many people would like to believe they haven't actually sinned. And that is a problem because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really allow us the adultery of the heart and say, oh, well, I didn't actually commit adultery. So the faculty of desire that we have is not necessarily, it's, it's not sinful. It's what do we do with our desire? 
and our desire can be sinful, or for a Christian, it can also be a righteous desire. And so we are to put to death sinful desires if we're going to have any real success in our Christian living. We don't just say, okay, I'm going to go so far and then I'm not going to perform the act. And a lot of Christians, I think, would like to live in the realm of allowing themselves a lot of sin in their mind, but they can somehow withstand the fact that they won't actually commit the deed. And if I may just do a a tangent here, one thing I've noticed in premarital counseling, uh, if you're married too late, don't listen, but for those of you who are going to get married and you... Uh, Christians especially, a lot of young people, they come to me and they've been so scrupulous and so, um, and it's good and I'm really thankful for this. They don't want to cross physical boundaries before they get married. So because they're so focused upon the physical side of it, they actually allow themselves emotionally and in their words and suggestions to say things to the other person that are almost sort of reserved for the marital relationship. They sort of allow themselves to say things that for someone who's been dating three weeks, this is not really quite appropriate um, because they're not committing a deed. And it's built into us as Christians. We're so fearful of committing the act that sometimes we allow ourselves to go down another path where it may be the mind or even just words that we say to someone that are transgressing the appropriate boundaries for the type of relationship that we may have. And we can do this in all sorts of different ways. Now, I do want to just zero in then on secret sins as we've been looking at thoughts and temptations. Um, And I did a a talk on secret sins last week to a young adults conference and I left to go back home after it was done, but one young man went up to another pastor and he uh, confessed to the pastor that he'd been committing a secret sin for 18 years and confessed his sin and said he was going to seek to get help. And, you know, it's kind of like you... You don't like to talk on these topics, but when you go and you realize that, you know, you may have saved a young man by God's word from, from leading a very unhappy life. And most of these people who do commit secret sins can be very unhappy because they also know they shouldn't be doing this and yet they continue to do it. Now we're told in Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Nobody likes to be found guilty of doing bad things, and open sins are often halted because of the eyes of man, and so um, some people commit what we call secret sins. Paul was one who committed secret sins because of the covetousness that was in his heart, even though to the outward viewer, to another man or woman, Paul was a righteous person. And so his outward conduct was moral, but his heart was a boiling cauldron of covetousness. Now, this is always going to be a problem for us as God's people. It's believing that God exists, but the sin of practical atheism. Practical atheism is committing a sin in private where you are basically denying that God sees and knows and cares. So you're doing something in private that you would never do in public, which is to say that you are actually more concerned about what man would think because you wouldn't do this in front of man, but you would do it in private. So you're more concerned about what man would think than what God would think. And that's what makes us practical atheists. Stephen Charnock and his existence and attributes of God, it's uh, got a section on practical atheism. It's worth the price of the book, which is admittedly not cheap. Um, 
it's worth the price of the book to look at how practical atheism affects us as Christians. And remember Jonah thought he could run from the Lord's presence? It affected Jonah. You have Adam and Eve who Adam had this great theology. He walked with God in the cool of the day. He knew God. He loved God. And then he sins and he thinks he can hide from God. We all have, because of sin in our hearts, this weird idea that somehow we can sin in private. And that really betrays our theology where we say God is all present. God is all knowing. Now, what is a secret sin? A secret sin is either something that is kept off the public eye. Let me give you an example. A church-going man comes in with his family, smiles, whatever, looks good, dresses nice, uh, maybe, you know, even does some work around the church, but goes home and he may abuse his wife verbally, he may abuse his wife physically. It's a secret sin in the sense that it's off the public eye, though it is in the home. That would be a secret sin, is that he is somebody in public that he is not in private. And I think one of the worst things that someone could ever say to you And I'm trying to think of worse things. I think there are worse things. But one of the worst things that someone could ever say to you is, you're not the person I thought you were in a negative sense. Imagine being told that you are not the person I thought you were. A secret sin can be that which is kept off the public eye, but is done in private in somebody's home or whatever other place would be private. And it could be between two or more individuals, but not generally public. And then there are secret sins that are kept off any mortal eye. So this could be the secret workings of your heart. So there are secret sins in the sense that someone may do something in their bedroom or in their office or wherever it may be. They may do it in their home where it's just them and their wife. Or it may be something that actually no mortal could ever see, just you and then God would be the only other person that could see it. And this happens because of inward deception. Our sins do deceive us, and we judge our outward sins more strictly than our inward sins. So we will say, how could I have done this? But how often do we say, how could I have thought this? And that, again, betrays the real issue. We should be as concerned about what we think as what we do, because what we do arises from what we think. And so the secret sins are actually the closest sins. Actual sins that we commit have to travel via our secret sins from the heart. And so they're the closest thing to us. And so what are we to do? Well, we have to remember that these secret sins, and they can manifest themselves in a thousand different ways, will only be properly dealt with when we return to the fact that God is present. And God's presence is not an indifferent presence. But for Christians, God's presence is also not just the fact that He is present. So if you go back to Hebrews 4.13, it's interesting that it's kind of scary that nothing is kept from the eye of God. But then you get to Hebrews 4.15 and you have one of the most glorious passages of how Jesus Christ sympathizes with us in our weakness. Why would that come after verse 13? Because in our weakness, we do sin. 
But then you find out we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize us, who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, and he sympathizes with us. So, knowing that God sees us is one solution to secret sins, but for Christians, we don't just believe God is all-knowing. We believe that God is all-knowing through Jesus Christ, who is also all-seeing as our high priest and is able to sympathize with us in our weakness when we are tempted inwardly. And I think that's a very important point about Hebrews chapter 4. Whether you get to Hebrews 4.15 or 4.13, you need both of those to appreciate that 4.15, you can only truly appreciate Jesus sympathizing with us when you also remember that God sees everything that we do and knows that we do sin in the inward man. If you don't believe that we sin in the inward man, you're not going to then appreciate Jesus Christ sympathizing with you with the struggles that He knows you have because you are but flesh. So that's important, and it also is important because we have to remember there are degrees of hypocrisy. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes someone will say to me, oh, well, we're all hypocrites. And we have to be careful when we say we're all hypocrites. There's a sense in which someone can be a de facto hypocrite like a Pharisee, where they would get Matthew 23 spoken to them, that there is nothing about them internally that matches up with them externally. Christians are not de facto hypocrites. They are not a hypocrite. But Christians can do hypocritical things. And the difference is, is that what we do outwardly in terms of our righteousness, because we are Christians, should also be to some extent true inwardly. The true hypocrite doesn't have a correspondence of outward righteousness and inward. But the true Christian does, even though it's not perfect, have a correspondence between outward righteousness and inward. Which means that we should try to cultivate as much as possible the inward thoughts and desires as we can. The outward actions will actually be a lot easier to the degree that you are concerned about the inward thoughts to the degree that you put to death thoughts that do lead you astray. Now, Obadiah Sedgwick, I haven't quoted him, uh, not that well known, but he, he made a point, and it's something that's really resonated with me in my own struggle and sanctification. He says, Beloved, the main battle of a Christian is not in the open field. His quarrels are most within, and his enemies are in his own breast. When he has reformed an ill life, yet it shall cost him infinitely much more to reform an ill heart. Outward change is easy compared to inward change. When I first became a Christian, I came back from university. I did a number of very righteous things. I got rid of some really good CDs that I wish I could get back, but I had a case full of CDs, and I was like, all right, Christian now, toss the CDs aside into the garbage. Uh, and then I got back to Victoria, and I had all my friends that were not Christians, but they were my high school friends. You come back for the summer, and they're like, okay, let's go out. I'm like, yeah, let's go out. And I'm going to be a light in darkness. And so we go out, and we go into this bar, and all of a sudden I'm like, what am I doing going into a bar? I shouldn't go into a bar. And I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to go home. And they all looked at me like, what? 
you're going home, and I turned on 106.5, which is the Christian station. I don't think I've listened to it ever since, but um, I turned on 106.5, and there was this song, My Deliverer is Coming, and I don't even, you know, and I started singing this song on the way home, and I got home to my dad, and he's like, oh, you're home early. I'm like, yep, I'm home early, and I stopped going to bars. I stopped listening to rap music. Uh, and now I just listen to Spotify and put on the, the things to take away all the bad words, so I'm much more righteous. And uh, that was easy. It actually wasn't that hard to reform the outward man. I could do a whole bunch of behavioral improvements overnight. But the inward man, the re reformation of the heart, the desires, the thoughts, all of those things, that's going to come all the way to the grave with me and with you. That's where the real battles lie. And that's something I think we have to be very conscious of as Christians. Now, I do want to just close with uh, a point here that I think we don't maybe appreciate as much as you should, but it comes down to justification by faith alone. And I think a lot of us, myself included, are more concerned about justification by man alone rather than justification by faith alone. Justification by faith alone is a doctrine that if it's rightly understood, what we are saying is that we need a perfect, complete righteousness credited to us, imputed to us by faith that comes from Christ, who alone is truly righteous, that we are so sinful that God had to send His Son into the world to live and die, to be raised again for our sake because we were not able to offer that to God which He requires. Now, if that is true and the remedy for our sin is so extreme in the person of Jesus Christ, would that not mean, therefore, that we should be prepared to admit a lot more than we do, that we are sinners, that we have thoughts and inclinations and ideas and all of these things that do not line up with God's will? But we are so concerned about justification by man alone that we do such a great job of reforming the outward aspects of our life that we pay very little attention to asking God to create in me what? A pure heart. That is what David's desire was. Fundamentally, David's problem was internal. Did he commit all of those stages of sin? Not all of them, but many of them. But his problem was internal. And when he goes to Psalm 51, he doesn't even need to talk about the specific sins. He doesn't say Uriah's name. He doesn't say Bathsheba's name. He doesn't talk about the actual acts that he performed. He actually goes to the real heart of the matter, that David is a moral pervert. And unless God comes to him in his grace, he will remain that way. And so he needs a pure heart. David was concerned about justification by faith alone. And so his thoughts were towards God. He could say all of those things about himself because he knew that God forgave him. This comes out especially in times of prayer with other Christians. We are, again, going to prayer meetings, and we should wear T-shirts, justification by man alone. 
And the reason I say this is because then we ask for prayer and we say, you know, my aunt, she's been really struggling with this toenail. It will not heal. Please pray for her. And the aunt's toenail, okay, thank you, Brother John, for the, your aunt's toenail. And, and uh, someone else has got a cough that just won't go away. And we can pray for those things. Absolutely. I, I hate being sick. Pray for it to go away and that we get good medicine. Absolutely. But a lot of times we're wasting our time and other people's times with how pathetic our prayer requests can be if we really believe we're justified by faith alone, which means that God actually justifies the wicked and we have nothing to be ashamed of because God accepts us, we can say, hey, you know what? I've really been struggling with some laziness this week. P please pray for me that I, that I don't feel so lazy and things like that. And you can actually help people that way. But as long as it's an, it's an organ donation meeting, uh, you, you may not help that many people. Samuel Stanhope Smith says, how many sins have escaped our knowledge or observation as well? Even in the moments of committing them, how many on a review of life have escaped our recollection? How many have even been mistaken for virtues even though they have false principles? We've done so many things and he says, ah, yes, well done, good and faithful servant. And actually it's been from pride or from other reasons. He says, ah, who can understand his errors? In other words, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian life because it actually frees you then to be real with God and with others. So when Luther wrote to Philip Melanchthon and he says, sin boldly, he doesn't actually mean go out and commit lots of sins. He was talking in the context of when Philip Melanchthon goes to God in prayer, he says, is Jesus going to be a little savior or a big savior? Go to God with real sins, not pretend sins. And you go to God in prayer with your real sins, and you find out that you have a real Savior, a God who will cleanse you from within and deal with those problems. Now, let me just close by quoting again Hebrews 4.13. And I want you to see how glorious this passage is when understood through the lens of Christ, not in terms of verse 14 and 15, but we're told, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And it struck me recently reading this that you can actually appropriate these words to Jesus Christ himself. If no creature is hidden from his sight, think about the verse read this way, and no creature, including the Son of God, is hidden from his sight, but Jesus was naked and exposed at Calvary to the eyes of him that is God the Father to whom he had to give account. And the account that he gave to God the Father was taking our secret sins as well as our actual sins upon himself as he was naked and exposed at the cross. And he gives account for the things that not only we have done, but the things that we have thought. And so if Jesus really has justified you, he has forgiven you for what you've thought. He's forgiven you for your private sins. He's forgiven you for your public sins. But if he has forgiven you for those things, then you shouldn't be afraid to confess them before him and sometimes before others and then ask the same Savior who has forgiven you for those sins to also sanctify you from those sins.
sins. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We uh, have all sinned in secret. We have all cherished iniquity in our hearts, and we have all thought things we should not think, even today perhaps. And so we pray, Lord, that you will deal with us by getting to the root of the problem, by creating in us a pure heart, a clean heart, a renewed heart. And this comes through the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, which we pray will be poured out afresh upon us all. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.